Welcome to Trinity Church. And my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors. And we are delighted, as we've said the last uh, couple weeks, to, to be back as, as a church family, meeting in person and also understanding uh, that uh, some of you aren't able or, or shouldn't join us at, that time, at this time. And we're glad you're uh, tuning in via our live stream. Uh, we have the privilege of opening up God's word and hearing from him uh, this morning. If you have a copy of your Bible, you can uh, turn to Matthew. We've been uh, continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew as we dive deep into the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew for so long, you might not even remember a time that we weren't uh, in this uh, Gospel it might be a vague recollection back to our series of, say, Daniel or, or something like that. And, and we don't apologize for that as we believe that studying who Jesus is, what he came to do, is exactly what we need as a church family to understand our God better, to worship him more fervently. And we hope that by... Uh, systematically going through paragraph by paragraph uh, of this uh, gospel uh, that we can demonstrate how to study the Bible on your own with a friend, with uh, a small group. Uh, there, there are many other books in the, in the canon uh, worthy of study. And, and the best way we believe we can equip ourselves as a church to do that is by demonstrating how we can work through paragraph by paragraph of this gospel. Uh, you know, those of us who have the privilege of, of preaching uh, here at Trinity, you know, study our passages, devote significant time to, well, how does this relate to other uh, passages in the Bible? But at the same time, you should never come to the end of a sermon and think, I could have never got any of that on my own with a a friend, studying it as a, a family. Uh, you know, some people think that would be a, a compliment uh, to their ingenuity, but, but not us. We, we, we want to be demonstrating how you can do it on your own, how you can do it uh, with others. Why? Because we believe God wants to form a, a people who are not fully reliant on being you know, spoon-fed the truth from God's word, but who are equipped and being equipped to teach, to minister to others, to do the work of the ministry. And to that end, let's dig into our passage for today. We're in Matthew 17, starting with verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, For he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. 
For truly I say to you, if you have the faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Pray with me. Father God, would we come to your word seeking to learn from you? We, we understand that your truth is spiritually discerned. So we pray that uh, your spirit would be our teacher here today. That we would uh, know more about you. And that would inform our love for you because of our time here studying your word. We pray this all for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. Have you ever had a spiritual high? And I'm not really talking about a weed, but an experience where you felt like you were on a spiritual mountaintop. You felt very close to God, you, you seem to take multiple steps forward spiritually. Maybe it was a camp experience um, or a retreat, and maybe a mission trip, maybe just relaxing on a vacation and able to uh, concentrate and have plenty of time to think. Maybe you, were, you saw someone else have a radical spiritual change. It felt like a spiritual high. And it seems so often that the devil understands that too. And so often that you are bombarded with the cares and concerns of life right after such an experience. And that's exactly what we see happening in our passage today. Right after such a tremendous experience of the transfiguration, Jesus and his uh, closest uh, three disciples have just come down uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus' face uh, shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light, if you remember from last week. And and he was talking with Moses and Elijah. And you, you might remember the disciples were overwhelmed. And two of them were overwhelmed and didn't say anything, and Peter processed it a little differently and just said the first thing that came to his mind, which, typical for Peter, wasn't really the the smartest uh, thing to say. He wants to make tents for Moses, Elijah, Jesus. And, And that's not happening as a bright cloud overshadows them and they hear a voice which could only be that of God speak. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And once that they heed Jesus' invitation to rise and not fear, they see none but Jesus. And on their way down the mountain, the disciples have questions. And Jesus answers them. And then this happens as we come to our passage today. Our crowd gathers and a man comes up in desperation as the disciples 
have been unable to heal his son. Yep, that's exactly what we would expect right after such a spiritual high, such a mountaintop experience. And it's, it's hard to not think at least a little of Moses as he comes down the mountain, Mount Sinai, that is, and sees the people worshiping the, the golden calf. And he, he shatters the two tablets in, in his hand. And certainly both stories don't have a one-to-one uh, correspondence, but, the, but there is an echo uh, there of Moses descending Mount Sinai. And, and it reminds us of the fact that faith in the one true God was always the issue. It was the issue way back then in the Old Testament, and it's still the issue here in Matthew, as Matthew hones in on that today. So so faith, and and the key to faith is in its object. It, It, by definition, is a passive action as it is choosing to trust in whatever, whoever, is the object. It connects one with the qualities of the object uh, of faith. For example, uh, this podium. If I'm saying I trust this uh, podium to hold together and do what it's designed to do, I'm trusting that the person who made it, made it well, didn't do shoddy work, used the right materials. If I were to say like, jump on top of this, which I will not. But if I'm saying I trust it, I'm trusting that it's going to hold together, do what it was designed to do. And it it obviously helps that I know who made this. Uh, One of our elders, uh, Todd, um, all of us have seen work he's done before, very high quality work. I can, with relative certainty, say, that this is going to hold together, going to do what it was designed uh, to do. And and let me take another illustration. This one from uh, trusting not an object, but a a person. So our girls, especially Sayla, likes to jump off stairs to somebody's arms, obviously. She's two. And... The key to her being just fine, or at least, say, not crying for 30 seconds, isn't so much how much faith she has. In that, I mean, I guess it would be more faith to jump off five steps than four, or six than five. But but the key to her being okay is probably not so much how much faith she has, but, like, whose arms is she jumping to? For example, if she's jumping to Mercy's arms, is, is that a good idea? Given that Sayla's almost the same size as Mercy, and she's probably going to realize pretty quickly that she should just get out of the way, it, it, probably not a good idea. The same result as if you're jumping to the cat or something of that nature. Probably not going to turn out too, too well for her. If she would jump to Hosanna's arms, Hosanna's bigger, you know, slightly better decision. But, you know, jumping six steps to Hosanna's arms, she, she would try to catch her, but I wouldn't bet money uh, on that one. 
But, but if she's jumping to my arms, will I catch her? Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Don't worry about that. It's more the object of one's faith than how much faith she has. And our story today brings faith front and center. And Matthew focuses on faith and power in this passage. And you might ask, how did I come up with that? Well, well, let's look at the repetition we see in this passage. Verse 17, Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation. Verse 20, Jesus states, because of your little faith. Later on in the verse, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. That repetition is just as evident in English as it is in Greek. But, th- but there's another a repetition going on that's very obvious in Greek. And we, we get a little bit of it, the, the concept at least, in our English translations. Look at, back at verse 16 once again. It says, they were not able to heal him. Verse 19, why could we not cast it out? Verse 20, nothing uh, you, you will not be able to do. Nothing will be impossible for you. You see the repetition also concerning power and the ability to do in this passage. And that repetition is key to conveying the main point. And at the same time, I also like to read what the other synoptic gospels, if they have the same story, how they portray it. And in the case of this story, both Mark and Luke record this one. Mark gives a lot more details than Matthew does. Mark devotes a full 16 verses to this story. And, and among other things, Mark includes more interaction between the boy's father and Jesus, along with the father's fight for, for faith. Uh, Matthew is not focused on, on the faith of the father as he zooms in on that of the disciples. And Mark concludes with the words of Jesus, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And, and prayer is certainly an expression of faith, but Matthew doesn't want to distract or complicate and uh, keeps it squarely on faith. Luke, on the other hand, he abbreviates this episode far more than even Matthew does. He doesn't include any of Jesus' interaction with the disciples about why they couldn't cast out the unclean spirit. And he concludes with this. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Same Jesus, same story, just slightly different focuses. And today we don't have a couple hours. We're not going to try to, in vain, preach this story from all three of the different gospel authors. Instead, we're going to focus on Matthew's message he conveys with this story, and that's of faith and power. So, so let's work our way uh, through this text. The, the narrative is quite simple. The disciples can't heal the boy with what seems to be, as it's described here, extreme seizures. 
So, so his father comes to Jesus. And that brings up the question, should the disciples have been able to heal this boy? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. Remember back in chapter 10 and the training mission, so to say, that Jesus sent his disciples out on. Matthew 10. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And that is all what Jesus had called them to do. And that's also the implication of the the text we're in here in chapter 17, as Jesus wouldn't have rebuked them so sharply if there wasn't something that they were supposed to be able to do anyways. And Jesus has a pretty harsh exclamation. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. There's no indication in Matthew here, that Jesus is targeting the boy's father for his faith or, or, or lack thereof. Importantly, it comes in response to the disciples' lack of faith. But I don't believe Jesus is saying the disciples are completely devoid of faith. Instead, as we've seen in this gospel, as followers of Jesus who understand better who Jesus is, what he was here to do, better than, they understand that better than everyone else, including the religious leaders, that their lack of faith is typical of the whole generation. The, the idea is, if they don't even have small faith in this situation, the rest of the people can be rightly characterized as being unbelieving and perverse. That their lack of faith in this situation reflects the generation as a whole. And then the story continues on. Jesus rebukes the demon and heals the boy instantly. And the disciples come to him and ask him why they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus responds, because of your little faith. Why is little faith such a big deal? Well, it's because it tells the world that Jesus has little power. Truly, lack of faith proclaims that Jesus lacks power. The disciples were followers of Jesus. He was the one who gave them the power and authority to heal and to cast out demons. Their power was never their own. And Jesus never expected them to do miracles of their own power. It was always Jesus' power that he had granted to them to work such miracles. Their failure to be able to cast out this demon showed others that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. And unsurprisingly, Jesus doesn't take this as a trivial matter, and nor, nor should we. Jesus' name, his reputation, is at stake. The disciples might have reasoned that uh, their uh, failure 
was primarily bringing shame on them. But, but look how the Father refers to them, uh, to Jesus, as your disciples. The, the, the primary and most significant shame wasn't on them, but was on their master, the one they were following, the one who had supposedly given them this power. Was Jesus not all he claimed to be? Was he a fraud manufacturing healings? The healings we've seen already in this gospel. The name and reputation of Jesus was at stake. And not too much has changed since Jesus' day. As I believe it's, it's uh, fair to, to characterize our generation in a similar way that Jesus characterized his. As a generation, as a whole, we're, we're good at taking action, doing what we can. But, but most people aren't known for their faith in trusting God to do what only God can do. And if that's our generation, we're called to be attractively distinct and to be men and women who believe God and trust in him. And that faith in our God is a powerful message. And when God works, the one to receive all the praise and glory is him, not us. Let me be a tad more concrete. You know, our world is concerned, to say the least, about COVID-19. Tons of people are out of work. Businesses are teetering on bankruptcy. The government may have money in the short term, but questions abound for long term. Still, many Americans have confidence that things are eventually going to get back to normal. We, we trust our scientists, our medical personnel, the strength of our economy. And that's all good and well, but just so you know, that's not Christian faith, just optimism about the future. We trust in a God who is sovereign over all of this. We believe he knows everything about what's going on. We believe he knows where COVID-19 started. He could stop it in an instant if he so chooses. And he is a whole lot smarter than us in his wisdom overall. This, this week, let, let's, let's talk about where you lack faith, where I lack faith in Jesus. And, and before you can grow in uh, your faith, though, you need to see the gravity of the issue. Uh, otherwise, you or I will just justify it as I'm being a realist. But, but your, your lack of faith, my lack of faith, proclaims that Jesus lacks power. So, so where do you need to grow in your faith? In asking that, I, I know that there's a risk. And, and this passage mas masterfully addresses that. The risk is that you would despair over your past and how your lack of faith has affected your present. Where would I be if I had only had faith to step out in this situation, in that situation? What would I be doing if I trusted 
God back there in that and, and so on. But, but look at this story and the truth present that Jesus works despite their lack of faith. I mean, that doesn't mean that Jesus was uninterested in them growing in their faith. However, the boy goes away healed. Why is the boy healed? It's not because the disciples missed the opportunity, but because Jesus worked despite their lack of faith. That's relieving. That's freeing. That's Jesus, and it's in his power we trust. Let's keep going in this passage as Jesus explains how God works through faith. Verse 20, And he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. We, we see here that even the smallest faith is powerful to do seemingly impossible things. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you might remember back a few chapters ago in chapter 13, Jesus' parable of the mustard seed and how that means that the smallest faith, it was the, one of the smallest seeds in the region at the time. This is not good as an indication of the, the disciples' faith, as the disciples don't even have that small of faith. And Jesus says that they can tell this mountain to move from here to there, and it will. And you might be a little puzzled by this, given you, you probably haven't seen mountains literally move like that on a word recently. And you might probably are wondering, like, I don't even know why I would want to do that. Like, I mean, I guess it could be of some value in war or something like that, but I'm not really sure what great reason I would have to literally tell a mountain to move. And, and, and thankfully, this is a proverbial expression, meaning the most improbable event or occurrence. Hear the words from Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That the most improbable occurrence could happen, and God's covenant love remains on his people. Paul uses a similar expression in 1 Corinthians 13, he writes, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Again, to move or remove mountains is a proverbial expression for the most unlikely miraculous occurrence one could ever expect or see in nature. And Jesus says that even the smallest faith can do seemingly impossible things. Think about that for a minute. Wow. That's power. 
And again, it's, it's not based on the amount or, or measure of faith. Because only the faith as a mustard seed is what's needed. It's based on the object of that faith. And it showcases the power of Jesus. To Jesus, faith is not solely an intellectual assent to a concept, but, but is a practical reliance on Jesus as the living God. So, so you might ask, what, what's Trinity's view on miracles? Basically, we're, we're all for them. Let, let me explain. First of all, concerning miracles as recorded in the Bible, and as we've seen some already, many in the Gospel of Matthew, we believe the Bible is speaking truthfully. When Jesus says he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, we believe that he's not secretly getting a whole bunch of food from the nearby market or something, that he is literally performing a miracle. As in that passage, we understand language that in that case, the Bible's using an estimate. It's not doesn't mean it's being untruthful if there's actually 4,950 or untruthful if there's 5,100 men or something of that nature, that 5,000 is a very adequate estimation. And also we recognize figurative language as in our passage today, moving a mountain. Some Christians get, get all bent out of shape. Some people, when they come to the Bible who don't trust what the Bible's saying, get, get all bent out of shape about certain miracles in the Bible. A classic one is Jonah and that big fish and spits him out three days later. And to be honest, I don't lose much sleep over Jonah or the fish. Why? Well, because I, along with Christians all throughout the ages and all throughout the world, we recite the, the Apostles' Creed, what we've always believe that Jesus died he descended into hell Hades pummeling Satan and he rose in victory so yeah Jonah in the belly of a fish a whale something like that that's that's pretty small um that that's JV compared to what we we all believe that Jesus died and he was buried and he rises again in victory. And we believe that Jesus can and still does work miracles. We believe he still heals. He still casts out demons, saves, and transforms people. And if you are a Christian here today, don't forget the miracle that God has done in your life in bringing you to faith. So, so what are the impossible things in your life. Maybe it's a broken relationship that seems impossible for God to heal. And maybe it's a situation you can't imagine a way that God could work it out for good. Maybe it's a person you deeply love, but you can never see that person coming to faith coming to Jesus. Well, guess what? 
Jesus is in the business of working miracles and doing seemingly impossible things. Trust in him. Trust in his power. It's not dependent on my ability to make it happen. Not dependent on my power, thankfully. It's dependent on the power of Jesus. And now verse 21. What does it say? And you might be looking at your Bibles and say, I don't see a verse 21. What, what, what happened to that? Did a did printing error or something like that? What's, what's going on with that? And, and I point this out. You, you might, maybe in your Bible, it's in the margin or in the foot uh, notes. I, I point this out because I don't want your faith to be rocked when someone attacks the trustworthiness of the Bible because, whoa, look, there's verses missing. Actually, I believe this adds credibility to the scripture's claim to be breathed out by God. Let let, let me explain. So so first thing, where is verse 21? Or why is it not here? If you have a King James, New King James Bible, you see that verse 21 is there other translations like the New American Standard have it in brackets? Others, like my Bible, has it in the footnotes. And the verse says this it says, But this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. The, 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 by the way, that's not a heretical message. In fact, it's, it's very biblical, as it's exactly what Mark says in his account of the story. The problem is this, that uh, some manuscripts have this verse in Matthew. Well, well, the majority of the oldest manuscripts we have do not. So, um, as biblical scholars practice what's called text criticism, and it's not just counting the number of manuscripts, like this many thousand have it, this many thousand don't, but it's weighing how old they are, what family they're from, and also weighing the evidence uh, present in uh, this gospel uh, as we, we looked at, does this actually fit the argument that Matthew is making, which it really doesn't seem to, and, and weighing also the habits uh, of scribes. The scribes had a, a tendency, as you might imagine, copying a, a full a book, actually maybe multiple books, have the possibility of making mistakes. And given their knowledge of other Gospels, like the Gospel of Mark, very well could see how you, one could assimilate such uh, material. And, and for example, what one scribe might write in the margin, the next scribe coming back through maybe doesn't realize that that's in the margin as a comment uh, another scribe made from his knowledge of the gospel uh, of Mark. And and there's really no compelling reason why a scribe would omit this verse if it was uh, original. So, So it seems very likely that this verse was an assimilation from the uh, gospel of Mark. So, so why can I say that 
bolsters the reliability of the scriptures? Am I just trying to spin it creatively? No, we're very carefully considering evidence. that Though the text is 99.9% settled, the, the Bible has been given the most comprehensive study of manuscripts of any ancient document. There are literally thousands of New Testament manuscripts. It is astounding compared to all the other uh, ancient uh, literature. And we want to get it right. And even though that this verse was in translations like the, the King James, New King James, and is certainly taught by other scriptures, there, there's no doctrine at stake with this uh, verse as it's in the Gospel of Mark. Well, we're happy to admit it if the evidence indicates that it wasn't original. So, on to verse 22. As they were gathered, gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. As we, as we finish our passage today, this might sound a little bit like deja vu, like, hmm, I think I've heard that before. And, and you have. Uh, a few weeks ago, in the last passage I was preaching, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection in very similar terms. Here, it, it, he gives it the same prediction. A few differences that, that we'll, we'll, we'll look at. But again, we need to be reminded that, that Matthew isn't doing a day-by-day -day journal of everything Jesus did and said. That would require us to carry around Gospels of Matthew, you know, larger than old school dictionaries, encyclopedias. But, but, but why does he include this? Well, why is this coming up? We, we already know this. Well, he includes it for emphasis. The climax of this gospel that is working all the way up to is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything is building up to that. Uh, truly, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the climax of God's story and is worthy of constant repetition. Uh, Ma Matthew is very clear. He's making sure we don't miss it. This gospel is leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can't read this and, and not get the sense of necessity, the sense of destiny in this. It, it's legitimate to refer to this gospel as a passion narrative with a extended introduction. As without the end of this gospel, the material about the life of Jesus, his ministry, ma makes no sense. We cannot rightfully interpret this material without seeing the end, seeing the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and here are a few peculiarities uh, we see in this uh, prediction from his last one of his death and resurrection. It says here, to be delivered. So, so that's in English class, if you might remember. That's a passive infinitive. 
the actor is not explicit there. But, but, but given the, the frequent Old Testament expressions uh, of God delivering into the hands of enemies, that, that, that there's no need to make it explicit. As Jesus is quite clear that God is the one who is delivering him over. Yes, we'll find out later that Judas does um, play a role in that, but the primary one who delivers Jesus over is God. It says, into the hands of men. I love this here, how Jesus as the Son of Man, envisioned by Daniel 7, is delivered into the hands of men. See the wordplay there. That this messianic figure of such great human significance is delivered over to be killed by the same people he came to save, came to deliver. Humanity kills Jesus, but then on the third day he will be raised. Again, implicitly, God is the one doing the action of raising Jesus. And what's the reaction of the disciples this time? They are greatly distressed. Remember how last chapter, Peter, when he heard Jesus' prediction of his passion, was rebuking Jesus. And now that there's no less disgust, no less distress for this idea that Jesus must be killed, but, but it's starting slowly but surely to dawn on them that this is clearly what Jesus is saying. They, they don't like it. And, and let me stop there. If you are here or, or watching this online and you're bothered by this idea, welcome. Th- thank you for joining us. And secondly, I would argue that you're reading the story correctly. That this is a concept that should disturb you. It should disturb us. If it just seems normal and commonplace, Jesus, as the Son of Man, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. If it just seems, oh yeah, yeah, it's probably because you, you, you've heard it too long. It doesn't shock you uh, anymore. It doesn't shock you like it should. The disciples were distressed. Even though Jesus had told them this before. They, they'd heard this before. Most Jews steeped in Judaism can't come to terms with the idea that God would pour out his wrath on the Messiah God pours out his wrath on the nations, the bad guys. At times he's punished his people for disobedience, thinking back to the Old Testament. But how could that be the case with the Messiah? How could the Messiah be delivered over to be killed? And some people in our day reject or struggle with the death of Jesus as as some sort of divine child abuse. And one thing that that view does get correct is, is the radical nature of the cross. This is shocking. The Messiah is killed. 
And it's not just that God the Father is okay with it. He's delivering Jesus over. He's pouring out his wrath on him. But, but, but don't stay there. See, it's not divine child abuse. This was the plan of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit working in union together. The plan since before the beginning of time. Jesus goes to the cross willingly. This is the most beautiful picture this world has ever seen. Jesus will be killed, but he will be raised on the third day. Slowly but surely, the disciples are starting to get just a little bit of this, but they're still very disturbed by this concept. Jesus is clear, and he links again his crucifixion with his resurrection. He will be killed, but victory is coming. If Jesus stayed in the tomb, Satan would have won. Jesus would still be paying for sin. But that is not what is going to happen. On the third day, God will raise Jesus, showing that the Messiah has fully paid for sin, that there's no wrath left for him to pay. If you are a Christian here today, the call of this passage is to increase your faith, to cause you to delight afresh in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We need to be reminded of that just as Matthew's audience needed to be reminded of that. If you are not a Christian here today, the call of this passage is to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, to trust in his death on your behalf to pay the penalty you deserve and to trust in his resurrection as the promise that you'll be resurrected with Jesus on the last day. Well, let's, let's pray together.